0: For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before I forget, just one, one point of housekeeping. Our Thursday morning events here at Faith are going to be cancelled for the next two weeks. Next week is Holy Week, of course, and Monday Thursday, so just come to a Maundy Thursday service. And our studies will be uh, will not be happening because I'll probably be working on a Holy Week sermon of one way, (laughs) shape, or form. So, so no events uh, this next week or the week following. The week following, because um, this this ox needs to be let out into the pasture to rest a little. So, (laughs) so I'm going to uh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to shirk the yoke for uh, a good four or five days and go off with my family. So. Anyway, this will be our last, our last class here for what will amount to three weeks by the time you do the calculation. And that'll be the case for um, our service and, and other class as well. Okay, in John Chrysostom, we left off on page 74. Uh, having just begun homily 12... <coughs> Which, doesn't really, which really starts out having to do with St. Paul in prison. And if you remember, Colossians 4.18 is the text. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. And what Chrysostom does, and does so wonderfully, it's kind of one of the major marks of his style and his ministry, is he kind of does this inversion of wealth and poverty, and so he shows Paul, even though he's in bonds and in prison and is, earthly, is in extreme earthly poverty and has nothing, he's completely free and wealthy and blessed. And so he encourages us to, to be inspired by this and to live our lives accordingly. And so that's kind of, you know, to paraphrase very generally the opening of this sermon. Now, we left off at the first full paragraph on page 74, Remember my bonds, Paul says, marriage is a bond, a bond ordained by God. Why then do you celebrate weddings in a silly and immodest manner? Have you no idea what you are doing? You are marrying your wife for the procreation of children and for moderation of life. What is the meaning of these drunken parties with their lewd and disgraceful behavior? You can enjoy a banquet with your friends to celebrate your marriage. I do not forbid this, but why must you introduce all these excesses? Camels and mules behave more decently than some people at wedding receptions. (laughs) Well, I think we've all witnessed that. And he's writing in, what's that? Yeah, not much has changed in all these years. Yeah, this is true. This is true. Is marriage a comedy? It is a mystery, an image of something far greater. You know, in one of the, I'm not really sure if it's, it's kind of one of these symptoms. Yeah, it is. It's a symptom. It's symptomatic of this shift in our culture. Once upon a time, weddings, weddings, the rite of holy matrimony, took place in divine service on Sunday morning, the reception immediately after. That's it. That was, that was the wedding. Now, could you, could you imagine a bride these days going along with that? No. Could you imagine a, a bridegroom going along with that? Yep. Maybe. <laughs> Until he asked the bride. <laughs> and no, not going to do that either. But, but, you know, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. In the first place, again, there's, there's nothing that says the church has to bless a marriage. There's nothing that says a pastor has to marry two people. If you go looking through the scriptures, Old or New Testament, New Testament most fitting obviously, you will not find a single dominical command where our Lord um, gives the office of pastors to marry people, or gives the church to marry people. So, in the first place, we need to realize that this is something auxiliary to the church, and it really is, properly speaking, a a a matter of what is sometimes called the first article, God's gifts of creation, and to a lesser degree, I sometimes think that this distinction isn't as as helpful as it's cracked up to be, but to a lesser degree falls predominantly in the left-hand kingdom camp, the civil camp, as opposed to the ecclesiastical camp. Unfortunately that's been abused in our time to simply say, well, Since marriage is a left-hand kingdom issue, then Christians can't say anything when the pagans want to make marriage between a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, or a cat and a dog, or whatever they want to do. And that's not true. That's misleading. So, it's not just because it falls predominantly in the left-hand kingdom doesn't mean the right-hand kingdom has nothing to say about it. I mean, what a silly argument that is, right? all the atrocities of government and genocide happen in the left-hand kingdom. Does that mean the right-hand kingdom has nothing to say about that? Give me a break so you can see where this has been misapplied in our time. Um, but then, given that this is the case, what would be really radical and revolutionary was is for our young people to go, okay, well, since culture has taken all of this wedding, holy matrimony, um reception, day of the bride, however you want to conceive of it, and has taken it to this extreme, then to be radical and revolutionary, we want to bring it back to its churchly setting, and not even a major component of the churchly setting, just simply um, a rite that takes place within the divine service. It would take take truly humble, wonderful, beautiful-hearted people uh, to be willing to do that in our culture and context. So, um, so that's my appeal to any young people listening. <laughs> Maybe if we've got some uh, ten-year-olds listening, they'll be ready to do that in a, in another ten years or so. All right. Top of seventy-five. If you have no respect for marriage, at least respect what it symbolizes. This is a great mystery. Now quoting St. Paul. This is a great mystery, and I take it to mean Christ and the Church. It is an image of the Church and of Christ, and will you celebrate it in a profane manner? But then who will dance, you ask? (laughs) Why does anyone need to dance? Pagan mysteries are the only ones that involve dancing. We celebrate our mysteries quietly and decently with reverence and modesty. How is marriage a mystery? The two have become one. This is not an empty symbol. They have not become the image of anything on earth, but of God himself. How can you celebrate it with a noisy uproar which dishonors and bewilders the soul? All right, interesting. You may not agree with all of his critiques. I think interesting because, because very frequently it's sort of like, in Lutheran circles, pietism, or more broadly in America, like fundamentalism or something like this is blamed for the, you know, no dancing type of thing. But you, what I want to simply point out here is, you can see historical roots and origins and a kind of separation from culture's way of, uh, popular culture, pagan culture's way of, of dancing and doing things, being entertained. Tracing all the way back to the earliest ages, so this isn't some uniquely American sentiment. Um, this is uh, this is at least at least the voice voicing these things has been heard through probably all the centuries of the church. Um, so calling us calling us away from pagan culture. Now some some more interesting and uh, more deep things here just in the language itself that I want to point out to you and you probably noticed it already. Um, So obviously the argument is that marriage is an image of the church and of Christ and then we celebrate our mysteries. Mysteries here is the, so in Greek it's mysterion, and that gets translated uh, into Latin as uh, sacramentum, from which we get sacrament. So this is, we celebrate our sacraments quietly and decently, and here the mystery or the sacrament is used more broadly. Now if we're gonna, and Lutherans, we have no problem with this. Like, Let's first define a sacrament, and then let's say how many there are that fit that definition. If we define a sacrament in the traditional Augustinian way of a sign and a word, and that word and sign communicates the grace of God, is a means of the Holy Spirit to communicate the grace of God to us, then if we define that as a sacrament, then there's really two. There's baptism, where you have water and the word and it communicates the grace of God. Um, And then there's the Lord's Supper. You have bread and wine, and you have the word that makes the bread his body, the wine his blood, and it communicates the grace of God. Um, If you want to be a little bit more loose with your definition, you might slip absolution in there. But you just don't have a visible sign, unless you're going to say the pastor, which is kind of weird. So absolution might slip in there as something that communicates the grace. Now, if you go more broadly than that, and you want to define it more broadly and just say... um, anything where there's a word and a sign or anything where there's a mystery involved, that is something that, that isn't immediately apparent to our reason or senses, um, then you can broaden it out and you can talk about other mysteries. And indeed, I think the scriptures do frequently talk about that. I think that, I think that if you just look at the way that St. Paul uses the language of mysterion or sacramentum, it's much more broad. He would include, he would include things like the Incarnation. How is that a a mysterion? Because what you see with your eye is just a man, and yet you know in him the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. So there's more than meets the eye. There's more than reason can comprehend. So Paul would say, of course, the incarnation is a mysterion. Then the Lord's Supper is a mysterion. All you see with your eye is bread and wine. But we know on account of God's word that it's body and blood. And then how would you apply that, this framework and this kind of definition to marriage? Well, husband and wife walk into the ceremony as two individuals. They walk out as two individuals according to reason and the senses. But what does God say has happened? That two have become one flesh. And so you can see how that's a musterion or a sacrament. A mystery, and so that's the sense in which I just want to introduce you into this kind of way of thinking um, that Chrysostom and so many of the ancient church fathers uh, thought. And before things really get kind of tightened down in the Reformation, after the Reformation, as we deal with the sacramentarians, those who who reject the um, who who reject that uh, baptism and the Lord's supper, are anything other than symbols. And are really, frankly, doing nothing or are, are acts of obedience to God. You know, as we really as we wage that war, we tighten down the definition of what sacrament is and we start using that in a technical sense. But it's very, very freeing to realize that before those controversies, we, we could speak freely. And the church did spree- speak freely, and, and we can continue to do that. So, yeah, beautiful. The mystery or sacramentum of marriage is that according to our reason and senses, two enter and two leave, but God says that's not true. The two that enter have now become one, one flesh. Okay, so we celebrate our mysteries, our sacraments, quietly and decently with reverence and modesty. How is marriage a mystery, a sacrament? The two have become one. This is not an empty symbol. They have not become an image of anything on earth, but of God himself. Again, very specifically, he means of Christ and the church. How can you celebrate it with a noisy uproar which dishonors and bewilders the soul? All right, let's go. uh, If you don't have any questions or comments, let's go a little further then. Yes, I see a couple hands. Okay, sure. Mm, mm. Pardon me. Thank you,
1: Barry, for the reminder. Um, I don't mean to be crass uh-huh. <laughs> uh, But don't you think in in addition to that the vows and everything that consummation of a wedding is is uh, the two become one um, in every sense. Mm-hmm. And as kind of proven, people who engage in premarital sex or extramarital sex. Are doing the same thing. They're becoming one with that person, even though they might not intend to. And it's hard to unbond, unbond from that. Um, yeah, that what you've done. And I think that's part of the problem.
0: Yeah, consummation, the marital act, um, is, and that's where, that's where Paul says, you know, are we who are members of the body of Christ, should we go out and join ourselves and become with a prostitute, and thus become members of, of the body of a prostitute. So there is, there is definitely something to that. Um, I, think, I think the take home point there, at least, at least the direction I would like to take that, um, would be to realize that uh, the marital union between a man and a woman is itself a mysterion or a sacramentum. How so? Well, despite what culture wants us to think, you can't just do that act no strings attached there is always consequence to that act Um, sometimes the very real consequence of a child Um, but there is always consequence to that act physically mentally emotionally we cannot just simply turn it into a pleasure transaction contrary to what yeah contrary to what society is is trying to Tell us these days, and so so that can take a toll on people negatively, yeah. and I, I want to steer away from this because I, there are there are people who. Um, you know, either they they grew up Christian and they lapsed into promiscuity for a certain certain period in their life, or they didn't grow up Christian and they experienced great promiscuity and then they've come into the church. And there can be a great deal of shame. And I think it's wrong to burden people with this idea that, hey, well, every single time you've, um, you know, fornicated had had sexual intercourse outside of marriage now you're carrying the weight of all these one flesh unions and should you ever desire to get married you've got you know And uh, i don't know i don't i don't find it fruitful in any way shape or form to use these things to tie a bunch of burdens and load people up with a bunch of baggage nor do i really think that that's paul's intention in, in that verse that i mentioned paul's intention is forward looking not backward looking not look at everything you've done and hey you're carrying all this with you that sentiment is not in scripture that sentiment is supposedly deduced from scripture but paul's admonition is rather for, forward-looking um, and i think the principle that undergirds paul's position is when when you co- see the and again not to be crass but the the equivalent the ecclesiastical equivalent of of sexual intercourse of the two becoming one in consummation is the lord's supper We partake of his body and become his body. We partake of his blood and become of his blood. The two become one flesh. It's very much analogous. It's completely holy. It's devoid of all lust or nastiness, but it's completely analogous where the two become one. That's why we call it a foretaste of the feast to come, and that feast is the wedding feast where Christ marries his bride, the church, of of which we are all part in. The climax of scripture, the climax of history. So, So rather, no matter, no matter what fornications or uncleannesses we bring as individuals to the marriage feast of the Lamb, he is the one who washes his holy bride and cleanses us of every spot and wrinkle, and the bond that we have with him, when we become one flesh with him transcends all other bonds, breaks all other bonds and makes us holy and chaste and perfect as the, as the bride of Christ married to, to Christ our Lord. So that's really the message I think we need to be bringing forward to people who are mangled and and broken and messed up. Yes, by their own lust, there's culpability there, but by an entire society that tells you this is what you're supposed to do. This is good. This is healthy. This is right. This is what it means to be a, a human being, um, and it's really just poisonous. You know. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I'm sorry if I took it off on a, a tangent or a different direction, but but yeah, these are important things to have in mind. Okay, I saw a hand here uh, here for. Oh, okay.
1: Um, then who ordains or consummates or how would you say defines a marriage? I mean, if it's a, if it's not the pastor or the church and who is in charge of who says you're married and who isn't i mean just go out pick anybody
0: is that how it goes yeah yeah you would love uh you would love walther on this point because there's this there's this sort of side fascination um of like let's define marriage and it's a really squirrely thing to actually define um so generally speaking though generally speaking Wherever two agree to live together in matrimony, that's a marriage. That's it. Yeah, that's it. That's, that's it. it. I mean, else. we we can quibble about individual circumstances or anything else, but it's two people who assent to living together in marriage. Um, at a certain point, at a certain point, even if those people don't consciously consent to it, there's even a recognition in pagan culture that their actions show that they have. They're just they're living in self-deceit. No, 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 we're not married. Yeah, well, you've been living together for seven years or 14 years or 21 years. And that's where we get this idea of common law marriage. And this idea, too, if you've been living together for seven years, 14 years, whatever it is, and then you want to you wanna leave, um, the court can step in and say, okay, well, this is how the property is going to be. Because it's just, it's understood by everyone that even though these two people were in denial about what <laughs> they were doing, it is in fact what it is. Oh. Yeah. So, um, two people consenting—that's the—that's the bottom line for a marriage. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, well, I just have a more clear uh, that I I can see that it's more clear that based on the sacraments that from the moment we were born, correct me if I'm wrong, from the moment we were born, God had, you know, laid down a road for us to walk into first, is to born again through the sacrament of the baptism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is, right? Because sometimes we have a wrong idea that we're born again in a different way. Yes. But the born again is practically is when we get baptized,
0: mm-hmm. right? Yes, that's okay. according to Jesus in John mm-hmm. three, you must be born again. You must be born of water and the spirit. So is
2: mm-hmm. the baptism. That's the baptism. A, okay, mm-hmm. and the second sacrament that we go through is the the first communion. Mm-hmm. I remember myself well, dressed up like a little bride and received oh, yes. the first communion. Uh-huh. So that is that the marriage that we celebrating taking the First Communion with Jesus? Mm. Is that the marriage ceremony that we have with Jesus?
0: Well, it's, it, I, think, I think it's safer to say just stick with, stick with the biblical language and stick with the liturgical language. Um, so the idea that Christ is the bridegroom and that the church is the bride, this is well-established biblically that we are having a foretaste of the feast to come, and that feast is the wedding feast, probably, you know, um, we're working in type and analogy when we want to make this, um, yeah, we're working in type and analogy when we want to say that, you know, it's, it's analogous to the two becoming one flesh, two individuals becoming one flesh in marriage, What's happening in communion is analogous to that. There's a, there's a type involved. And that means there's some ways it fits and some ways it doesn't. Also, with typology, um, it's, it's also very fluid. And there's an art to it almost more than there's a cohesive, all-encompassing logic to it. So, in one sense, in one sense, we are already, as church, married to Christ and we are already um, partaking of that one flesh union via the sacrament. Okay. So there's a now aspect, and we can talk about what it looks like as the, the reality now, but there's also very much a not yet aspect. So in the, in the ideology of, of, um, and, and the imagery of Revelation, that's the not yet aspect. The wedding proper is yet to come, the consummation of that is the holy communion in heaven between saints and angels and Christ and God and, and that, that oneness and unity for all eternity and the, the complete nakedness and openness um, uh, uh, that we have you know, um, with one another and the innocence therein. Um, that's all what's so that's the not yet. Right. Oh, I see. So, so we can talk in ways that sound contradictory in terms of some overarching logical structure and it. It's just really the now and not yet paradox and oh, I see. Yeah.
2: And it seems like every sacrament that we, uh, we, ha- we ta- it, that is taking place is like a ceremony that God is giving us to cleanse our, to cleanse us. It's like mm-hmm. the baptism, mm-hmm. the first communion is for cleansing of the sins, yeah, and also the they are vows from the Lord to cleanse us, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and also the holy and the and our marriage a matrimony mm-hmm. is also uniting two people standing in front of God, yeah, and God will bless us and cleanse us to start from there. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know every. Sunday, the the taking of communion, too.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, right. Yeah, there's this whole economy mm-hmm. of God's acts and deeds toward us. And whereas we just defined marriage a moment ago, um, sort of from the bottom up, and that is two people assenting, um, that coincides with God joining the two together in one flesh so that what God has put together let no man separate, as Jesus says. So the top-down view is God is taking two people and making them into one flesh, and this is a mystery. The bottom-up view is um, two people are assenting to this and consummating their their relationship, and thus the two are becoming one flesh. So just two different sides of the same coin. Of course, there's an economy in the sacraments. Um, The the baptism is a new creation that's the chief part of baptism is you become a new creature washed by the blood of Jesus with the holy spirit indwelling you uh, new, des- new free will a, n- a new will that is freed to serve god new desires new affections of the heart that battle against the the old adam that still remains in us and then we become, we become in our sons and daughters of God, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so baptism is, is the foundational sacrament, the sacrament that leads to all other sacraments and is always, is always there as the baseline reality. That's why we always talk about returning to baptism or remembering your baptism. It's the great strength of baptism is it's got something God does to us at one point in time. And that is, a, that is an act that he has done and a promise that he has made that we can always cling to, no matter who we are or what we've done. or you know, Think of the prodigal son. Right? He renounced his father. He renounced his household. He left okay, when he came, and he of course went into all manner of disaster. And then when he came to his senses and came back home, what was he? A son. Still a son. That's the baptismal promise. That's the baptismal reality. Once a son, always a son. You can't change that in God's eyes. So great strength there. Great strength there. And then yes, from that leads into the Lord's Supper. Holy things for holy people were made holy in baptism. And so we're made fit to partake of, of the holy things of Christ. And that's our, that is in a sense, um, I mean, just as, as baptism is our new birth, our daily food, again, in this sense is uh, the Lord's Supper. And so, um, this is the strength of the Lord's Supper. Is it's a constant, continual rejoining. As often as, as, often as you drink it, Jesus says, which means he intends for us to have it often and frequently. Um, you know, this is the this is the present tense and ongoing love of God and forgiveness of God being communicated to us. I mean, again, what is what is the love of God to sinners? I forgive you. I mean, that's that's what the love of God towards sinners is. He doesn't say, "I love you." I mean, this is where some of our language is wrong. He doesn't technically say, I love you as you are. He hates sinners. He hates wicked. He doesn't, I I love you being, you know, if we saw us as we are, we'd be like disgusting and pocked with sin and disease and half dead and, and like already being drug into the grave. And God doesn't say, I love you just the way you are. No. I mean, that's a horror in god's mind no god loves us not just the way we are in fact that's why we're going to die and be raised again so that we're never as we are so that for all eternity we're different than we are um so so much much clearer much clearer to just say what is it what is it like for god to say to us to a sinner i i love you it sounds just like this i forgive you and that that is a it is absolutely true in and of itself, and it's a, it's a promise that the, God's going to remove the sins and all their effects and make us into something entirely different than what we are. I mean, we'll still be us, there's continuity, but we'll be us in such a way that God will then look at us and say, I love you just the way you are. But that's after the resurrection. That's after the resurrection. Yes?
1: I think we discussed this with um, uh, Luther in uh, *Bondage of the Will*. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and he literally, uh, as what I got out of that, he doesn't see it. He doesn't see the sin and the, the pockmarks and the death, and because no. of that clothing, like a the king's robe.
0: Um, so. Yeah, I mean that's that's a good point. Is so- that crazy? Well, no, the, scri- I, the scriptures just speak in all different kinds of manners and modes. And this is, this, is why the, this is why the scriptures, I think, present themselves to an unbeliever as nonsense and as contradictory. Because we, they don't realize that there's different matters and uh, manners and modes and ways of speaking and different motifs and now and not yet. And if you just look at them like with crass, earthly, fallen reason, you go, these are all contradictions. Yeah, so I just so I just tried to lay the foundation, and and what was the specific example that you brought up? I I forgot now that
1: King's robes.
0: Oh yeah 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 yeah. So is it true? So, So here's the question: Does God see our sins or not? Yes and no, right? I mean, the Bible in some places very clearly He sees all things, knows all things. All my sins are before You. Indeed, he knows our sins better than we do, right? So in one sense, scripturally, absolutely he sees our sins, absolutely he knows and remembers each and every one, and then, and then what's the other side of that? No, we're clothed in the righteous robe of Christ. When he sees us, he sees Jesus. He sees not a single spot or wrinkle. He remembers our sins no more. Well, which one is true? Yes, <laughs> right? And, and so that's where if you're, a, if you're an unbeliever, if you're a pagan, if you've got nothing but fallen reason, you look at the Bible and you say it's nonsense. It's all contradictory. But if you're a Christian, you totally get it. You get the place and role of both of those teachings. And as I brought them up very plainly, they have to do with law and gospel. They have to do with the fact that, yeah, according, in, in accordance with the law, God can see all of this. And anytime time our, our sinful flesh would get too uppity, we need to be reminded that, um, no, God sees us exactly as we are. And then any time we're, we're crushed and we realize our disease and we repent of our sins, we want to do better, we want God's absolution, we want and cry out for a clean conscience, he says, I remember your sins no more, right? So yeah, we see their place and role and God's wisdom in giving us both. And so that's, that's the difference between enlightened reason and unenlightened reason. Unenlightened reason sees nothing but contradiction. Enlightened reason sees nothing but the tender compassion of of our God and Father. Okay, thank you for the uh, for the conversation points. All right, so it looks like it looks like we left off on page seventy-five, middle of the page. Chrysostom continues. They come to be made into one body. See the mystery of love. If the two do not become one they cannot increase. There's a a delightful statement. One that I need to sit down and ponder myself. If the two do not become one, they cannot increase. They can increase only by decreasing. Yeah, there's so much richness here in this. How great is the strength of unity God's ingenuity in the beginning divided one flesh into two and of course what's he referencing Adam being created and then God taking from Adam's side and forming the woman so So in the beginning, he divided one flesh into two. But he wanted to show that it remained one, even after its division. So he made it impossible for either half to procreate without the other. I love this, because the more you think about this, you realize that individualism is an illusion. You start to realize it's this very bizarre thing, very completely anti-American. But you, um, you start to realize that there's no such thing as an individual. Because I'm not me isolated. I'm only, I'm only me because of all of you and our interactions and all the other people in my life. There's no such thing as a me apart, apart from other people. There's no such thing as an individual we're all members of a body and we can talk about the body of Adam, the body of humanity that like sons of Adam, like that reality, even as that reality biologically, we're all related. Of course, you know, like that kind of low level thought is like, okay, duh. Um, but a little uh, like one step up from that is that there's, there's no such thing as individuality. There's no such thing as autonomy. We all are, there's no such thing as a human being there. There is the human being. Of which we are all a part. There is the man of which we are all individual representations of. But that's um, yeah, that's worth pondering. Very much worth pondering. So that's look, this is what Chrysostom is is after, is he's teasing out some of these ideas. And they're more profound than than what I've just mentioned here. The two can the two do not become, if the two do not become one, they cannot increase. They increase only by decreasing. That's like the. That's also like the seed going into the earth, and then it, it rises and produces many. So unless it unless it dies, it can't give birth to many. There's this decreasing that increases. Yes. Oh, sorry. Um, just one second. Barry, it's up front here. Yeah. You're not going to need to go to the gym today, or <laughs> we've got this covered for you.
2: So the family that God gave us, yeah. Um, okay, we we got we grew up, we got married, and the relative, if they're pagan, so we substitute our f- real family with the church, isn't it?
0: Yeah, there's a redefinition. There's some um, And that's the that's this whole this whole biblical motif that's so prominent in the Old Testament about the second-born son becoming the heir. You you see it over and over and over again. The second-born son becomes the heir. You see it with uh, the sons of Abraham. Isaac is the second-born; he becomes the heir, not Ishmael. You see with Jacob and Esau. Jacob's the second-born; he becomes the heir. I know there's other examples. The, there's the, ugh, I can only remember one of their names. There's Perez. Do you remember that? Um, oh, I can't Jesus remember the other the guy. Born? Yeah, Jesus is the second born. So, um, so this is how this works. If you look at Luke's genealogy in his gospel, remember where he traces from kind of, it seems to be Mary upwards. Um, how, does he, how does he end? You know, he gets to, I don't know, so-and-so, son of so-and-so, so-and-so, son of so-and-so, Adam, son of God. So you've got Adam, the son of God, and Christ is the second-born son of God. Now, we are all by nature born into Adam, and so we can talk about this like universal humanity, and we're all the same biology, and we all interact together on this plane, and so there's no individualism anyway, etc., etc. Now, this is why... This is why Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born into this other sonship, born under this other son. You cannot be in Adam and see the kingdom of God or enter the kingdom of God. You have to be in Christ to see the kingdom of God and enter the kingdom of God. So you must be born again and thus we become members, not (coughs) not strictly speaking of the first son, but of the second son jesus and this is why jesus then says um, you know remember that hey lord your mother and your brothers are outside they want you to come out and he says "Um, whoever does the will of my father these are my mother and brother and sisters and what's he talking about he's talking about this new family that is in christ defined by those who are in christ faith in him baptized in him um, obedient to the father and keeping and cherishing his word It's it's a new humanity. It's a new family. It's radically redefined. Yeah, And so that's the, I mean, this is our true heavenly family. um, Those who are in Christ with us. Yeah, so both of these things are true. It's a very helpful way of thinking about about all of this. Yeah, so thank you for that. Okay, so some rather profound reflections here um, regarding the increasing by decreasing and he continues about three lines down from the start of this paragraph how great is the strength of unity God's ingenuity in the beginning divided one flesh into two but he wanted to show that it remained one even after its division so he made it impossible for either half to procreate without the other now you can see what a satanic abomination it is to the attempts to try to do this or even the human desire to try to do this. It's just strictly speaking, a hatred of God. It's just a hatred of, oh, you made X? We like, we like opposite of X. And it's just a despising of God and his creation. Um, it's not possible even still. Chrysostom mm-hmm. continues, now do you see how great a mystery marriage is. From one man, Adam, he made Eve, then he reunited these two into one. You know, and there's something very analogous to this in the scriptures too, where where the world is made through Jesus. Humanity is made through Jesus and distinct from Jesus in order to be reunited to Jesus. You see that in a big trajectory like Christ is the one through whom the world was made. You can even see this in the Genesis, Genesis narrative where god you have God, you have the Spirit, and then God speaks, and His, it's through the Word that all things are created, and then John picks that up and says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So you have the Spirit hovering over the waters, you have God creating the, the heavens and the earth, you have the Son, the Word of God, through whom everything is being made. Humanity is being made through the son of god um, made distinct from him as creatures in order to be rejoined with him in the end um in in this wedding feast and so this is why i say i think i think like the closest i've found to the to the unifying theory of the scriptures to the overarching is the the dwelling place of god is with man like the, it's this marriage motif um that is, that is all-encompassing and all-explanatory in terms of what God had in mind before the foundation of the world, why he created the world the way he created it, and why the world, what, why the world is returning to, that fo- to him and to that form which he has given in the scriptures. It's difficult to articulate, but um, I think that this is the profound and all-encompassing mystery So even as Eve is taken from Adam to be returned to her, so man is taken from God in order to be returned to him. Or more specifically, man is taken from Christ, created through Christ in order to be returned to him. There's an analogy there, a, a parallel there. From one man, Adam, he made Eve. Then he reunited these two into one so that their children would be produced from a single source. You know, and that's just the beauty and the diversity of Christ because he takes, the, He takes and, and our God, he takes two and makes them one. And then the one, they have to decrease in order to increase. They multiply. And then even then we would expect the multiplication to be, um, I mean, if you've, got, if you've got two people, you've got two ingredients. If, if they make a cake, the cake's always going to have, you know, those two ingredients. All the children, all the progeny would be the same, but they're completely different wildly different the progeny and so so even though each each child i mean there's such a great mystery here just to ponder and enjoy um but there's there's such great diversity amongst the children even though they have the same ingredients they're all they're all one flesh of the of the man and the woman and yet how vastly different how vastly different and here we get all the fascination with like you know, birth order and all of that stuff, but even just um, not only by way of, of nature, not or birth order and experience, but by way of uh, or sorry, that's nurture, but by way of nature rather, uh, God creates different individuals, vastly different individuals, from the same ingredients, from the the one flesh union of two people. That's just incredible. It's just marvelous to think about God and His diversity and what He's what He's written into. And then, and then what that tells us about him. And what that tells us about what's to come. Yeah. It's not going to be boring. That's the thing. Okay, Crystal Stone continues. Likewise, husband and wife are not two but one. If he is the head and she is the body, how can they be two? She was made from his side. So they are two halves of one organism. God calls her a helper to demonstrate their unity. And he honors the unity of husband and wife above that of child and parents. A father rejoices to see his son or daughter marry. It is as if his child's body is finally becoming complete. Ah, remember! It is not good for a man to be alone, and we recall our Lord's words about the special gift of uh, chastity outside of marriage, of celibacy, uh, and that is uh, a special supernatural gift given to people who who don't require this earthly completion. <clears throat> but the normal course, the majority course, is that um, without this supernatural gift, we all, as individuals, whether male or female, uh, require marriage in order to be fully complete, and that I mean that goes further to the thesis. It's just a subcategory. If there's no such thing as an individual, because if you're an individual and you haven't been given the supernatural gift of celibacy, you're in want of that which um, completes you. Not in the Hollywood sense, but in the sense of um, the two becoming one once more. All right, well, let's just carry on. Chrysostom, even though he spends so much money for his daughter's wedding, I guess some things never change. (laughs) He would rather do that than see her remain unmarried. Since then, she would seem to be deprived of her own flesh. We are not sufficient unto ourselves in this life. Yeah, there's no such thing as an individual. How do they become one flesh, Chrysostom asks. As if she were gold, receiving the purest of gold, the woman receives the man's seed with rich pleasure, and within her it is nourished, cherished, and refined. It is mingled with her own substance, and she then returns it as a child. The child is a bridge connecting mother to father. So the three become one flesh. As when two cities divided by a river are joined by a bridge. And there again is the argument you can see in the background that, you're, that, that the three become one flesh and are so until the child leaves and becomes one flesh with another. You see, you always belong to a family. And going back just a step earlier, if you're, you know, if you're married, you're in, you're, in, you're in service to your wife. If you're not married, you're in service to the church. There's never a time where you know, you're just eddying out there in the cosmos as an individual, doing whatever you want, serving no one but yourself. That is, a, that is an invention of fallen man. And unfortunately, it's the predominant way, I guess like fish swimming in a poison tank, it's the predominant way we all see life. It's the natural way we all see life. I mean... Truth be told, you ask like any male what their ideal life would be, and it's like on a ranch somewhere where I don't have to talk to anyone. I mean, it, as much as I feel that, that pull even in my own heart, it's like you have to acknowledge that that's, that's an illusion, that's, that's not right, it's, it's a satanic aberration of, what, of who we are as creatures and what God intends for us, and, and what truly makes for a blessed existence. Such beautiful imagery here about consummation and uh, conception and what it is and how that how that functions in the marriage. It's so beautiful. The child is a bridge connecting mother to father, so the three become one flesh, as when two cities divided by a river are joined by a bridge. And here that bridge is formed from the substance. Of each. Just as the head and the rest of the body are one, since the neck connects but does not divide them, so it is with the child. That is why Scripture does not say they shall be one flesh, but that they shall be joined together into one flesh, namely the child. But suppose there is no child. Do they then remain two and not one? No, their intercourse affects the joining of their bodies, and they are made one, just as when perfume is mixed with ointment. Okay, so there, Chrysostom mentions you know those who are barren. Of course, the Bible has much to say about that, um, and in no way, in no way, are they dishonored or second class. Um, But there, the two become one, and that is the mystery of Christ and his church. And it is a a beautiful and blessed thing, nonetheless. (coughs) I like like Chrysostom's next line, because if you were actually preaching this sermon today, you would have to say this next line. I know that my words embarrass many of you. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason for your shame, uh uh-oh, is your own wanton licentiousness. That's true we can barely think about these things because our immediate default is they're dirty or they're lower than um, you know what Christians should be thinking about or this kind of thing. I mean I don't think so at all. I think there's just such profound wonder and beauty and mystery that God has wrapped into the family at the very heart of the family and what it is. It's really endless it's really endless and um, I think that there's when I think of when I think of things that I still have very, very much to learn about. I, I can hardly think of, uh, of anything but this. I mean, it's just, we're, I, I feel like I'm only scratching the surface here and, and Chrysostom's helping us scratch the surface and see that there's, there's much, much more um, here as well. Okay, he continues. Um, let's see if we can get a little further before we've got to close for the day. I know that my words embarrass many of you, and the reason for your shame is your own wanton licentiousness. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, quoting Hebrews 13. Yet you give marriage a bad name with your depraved celebrations. Why else would you be ashamed at what is honorable, or blush at what is undefiled? Oh, what great rhetoric. You're out having your lewd parties, right, and you don't blush. But now as a preacher tells you the true things of God, <laughs> you are blushing. <laughs> oh my gosh, such great rhetoric, such great rhetoric. Oh, that hurts, Chrysostom. That stings. He continues, that is why I want to purify your wedding celebrations, to restore marriage to its due nobility and to silence those heretics who call it evil. God's gift is insulted. It is the root of our very existence, and we smother it with dung and filth. This is what I want to wash away by my words. So listen to me a little while longer. Remember that you can't cling to filth without picking up the stench. Some of you call my words immodest, because I speak of the nature of marriage, which is honorable. Yet you show no modesty in your behavior at weddings. By calling my words immodest, you condemn God who is the author of marriage. Shall I also tell you how marriage is a mystery of the church? The church was made from the side of Christ. Beautiful parallel here in Chrysostom and many other of the church fathers, just as Eve was taken from Adam, so the church is taken from the side of Christ. Um, I don't think he goes into this, but so where this, where this happens is, remember when the spear pierces the soldier's side this is john's theology and he goes into it in his epistles as well but as the spear pierces uh, jesus side uh, out comes water and blood those very things which constitute uh, the church and so just just as we talked about the one son of god adam from his from his side is taken eve then you have the second son of god christ and from his side is taken the church Chrysostom continues with St. Paul. St. Paul says, I betrothed you to Christ to present you as a pure virgin to her one husband. 2 Corinthians 11. And we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Ephesians 5. And again, I think that, like so, so look, the marriage is yet to come, and yet even now it is. So here's the now aspect in the scriptures. We are now his body, his flesh, his bones. And by the way, St. Paul directly connects this to the Lord's Supper. We become his body by partaking of his body. We have his life as our life by partaking of his life. His life is in the blood, in the cup. Chrysostom continues, Think about all this and stop treating such a great mystery so shamefully. Marriage is an image of the presence of Christ. And will you get drunk at a wedding? Tell me, if you saw a portrait of the emperor... Would you insult it? By no means. All right, well, he gets his point across, doesn't he? And he does so eloquently with amazing rhetoric. No wonder they call him the golden Mouthed. That's what Chrysostom means. In three weeks then from today, we will pick up on page 77 with the first full paragraph there. I hope you all have a blessed, holy week. The Lord be with you.